Thank you for joining me on the podcast, Nels. Always a delight. Good to see you, Naya. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I'll do a little bit of an introduction and then I'll, uh, I'll ask you to kind of introduce yourself because um, some of our listeners may not have come across you before. So Nels is a writer, he's a broadcaster and former banker. He is the author of Think Like a White Man and his new book, The Hip Hop MBA, Lessons in Cutthroat Capitalism from Moguls, from the Moguls of Rap is out in 2024. Now, uh, we first met, was it the Oxford Oxford Union, is that when we first met? It was indeed, at the Oxford Union debate, yes. Really lively and amazing debate so far this evening. I'm going to start off by doing something I think might be somewhat unusual in the history of the Oxford Union. And before I do, I'm going to apologise to the President and to Nile. For I'm going to start off this evening by reaffirming one of the most vicious of Nigerian stereotypes in which the three of us share our heritage in Nigeria. I'm going to start off by bribing everybody. Yeah, so we were doing a debate. I can't, Which I it? beat you in, by the way. Yeah, yeah. no, he did. I, I, admittedly, even though, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure it was the best question. It I wasn't. It wasn't. I, I'm confident. Give it another question. I'll still defeat you. But I think it wasn't the best question. I, I didn't think it would be probably the best in you and I. But yeah, we'll have I a rematch. Concede, I'll concede defeat. So the, the question was on <laughs> who's more influential, Stormzy or, or Boris? I think that, that was it, wasn't it? Yeah, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> It wasn't. It wasn't like hey. It was just. It wasn't one that I could reset. I was called up literally. I think it was either that morning or um, oh, or the yeah. day before. So I had no time to prepare. I, I think yeah, just the evening before they just asked if I could step in in the last minute because some some DJ or so had pulled out and and yeah. really helped somebody write their line. So it, and so all the good arguments I would have said or so I'd already given it to somebody else. So I just had to improvise on the spot. But it went well. I think yeah, we won. I, I, you went very well. You, I don't. You didn't have notes, if I recall. So I was like, okay, we like it. We like it. Um. So, so yeah, we we kind of stayed in touch since, and been it's, best friends ever since. <laughs> yeah. Well, we we have. I think we have very different views on many of the discussions that um, I guess both of us talk about. So so now you you write a lot for the Guardian, and you you often write about race. But I don't. I don't. That's not necessarily your how you came into. Uh, public life so perhaps just start off with a bit of a background about you know how your career has developed over the last um decade or so and then how you came to be interested in questions about race and racism um it's it's a pretty interesting it's very thank you uh, once again for having me and i it's a uh, interesting i've been around for a, i might look a lot younger or so that's called black don't crack but i've been around for a lot longer than a decade i'll be i'm been around for the best part of two decades. My career as a writer started in the um, in the late nineties. I was started off writing for hip hop magazines, as many people did at the time. Which at the time was actually a burgeoning, really middle class career. I was a teenager in the nineties, I should point out, um, in the late nineties. And um, so I started off there, and um, from there I just my interest just evolved. I went to university, of course. I studied economics at university. After university, I went on. I couldn't really get I. For the life of me, I couldn't get a job in media, so I ended up becoming a banker. Um, I did well for myself over there. I worked in banking for about twelve years, and then um, so when I was in banking, it's not a bad alternative. It depends on what you. It, it depends on who you are. So if your mind, if you have a very creative mind, and you're there working certain tasks or certain behaviours or going into pitches or so, but and you, but you have that creative mind in the in the back of your head or so. If you're a creative person, it's going to come out of you. It's going to come out of you. You are, you are. There's something within you that's burning to get it out, and you will find a way to get it out there. You just will. 
and um, and that's what I did too. So at the same time, when I was working in banking, I used to I was still writing for the papers. I I used to write for the Evening Standard. I was a blogger for the Standard for a while or so. I used to write then. Um, I, I remember uh, around the 2010-2011 mark, I um, started I, I, the Voice newspaper. Really liked the stuff I was writing for the Evening Standard because it was quite daring, quite edgy, and they just asked they got in touch with me. And um, yeah, I started writing for The Voice, for The Voice or so, just all from The Voice. But for, even before that, I was writing for different publications, but it just kind of snowballed. Um, so, but in terms of actually writing about race and everything else, or writing about, um, or writing about issues, I, I don't think I just write about race, I write about quite a lot of issues. But in terms of writing about that, it was, I think I, I, I could probably trace it back to 2002, early 2002. I was in um, America. I was still on the street corner in America and um, in the Bronx, where not far from where my sister was living at the time. Don't worry, my sister's moved up and out of, of the Bronx. Um, she's a very wealthy lady now, lives um, somewhere in Dallas. Um, and uh, my much big sister was living there. And I just I had about $20 left in my name. And I should point out, my sister actually purchased a ticket for me to go to America. And this was not long after 9 11, um, which was an event that, of course, changed the world. So I was talking to the Bronx Street corner. I had $20 left in my name and there was a bookseller there, quite literally a bookseller in the most literal of sense, a person with a table selling books. And there's loads of African-Americans surrounding him. And I, I asked, um, I just thought, well, let me just spend my last $20 over here. And I asked the guy, what book should I buy? What book would you? Uh, no, I, first of all, I picked up a book called um, The Miseducation of the Negro, which was a book by a gentleman called uh, Carter G. Woodson. I picked that up, an absolutely amazing eye-opening book or so, really, really good. And then um, I asked what other book I could buy, and um, everybody just pointed out I should buy a book called The Coldest Winter Ever, which is a book by a writer called Sister Soldier, which um, many of your listeners probably never heard heard of before. Or if they have heard of her, they will know of her in the context of um, Bill Clinton, who, of course, in, 19, in the 1992 election, he was trying to distance himself from the left. And um, Sister Soldier made some statements about race and the riots in L.A., and Bill Clinton opportunistically took advantage of it, and the rest is history. So the Sister Soldier moment emerged. The Sister Soldier was an amazing writer. She wrote a book called Coldest Winter Ever, and and another book called No Disrespect, and other books since then. But I got back to London, and um, I read the I, no on the plane I was reading The Miseducation of the Negro, which I always found quite I found really enlightening, really really brilliant stuff. So when I also got back to London too, I my I, one of my roommates, named Nicola. Um, not roommates, colleague, we stay in the same dorm together. Um, she picked up The Coldest Winter Ever and started reading it whilst I was just unpacking my stuff. And then she just said, can I just borrow this? And then she came back, banged on the door around 7am the following morning and just said, dude, you've got to read this, you've got to read it, it's amazing. And then um, I just read it after her and then those two things, those two books over there kind of just set me up to where I am here with you today. Okay, okay. So that that's that's an interesting introduction. So so how would you summarize because I mean this this podcast we we the main thing we discuss is race, identity politics, mm-hmm. um and and basically the discussion about contemporary anti-racism. Yep. Um and so how how would you summarize your view of race and racism in the UK? How would I summarize my view of race and racism in the UK? I'll say it's a very very the United Kingdom is a very interesting country. It's a very, we're a nation blessed with very, very gifted people, with very interesting systems and controls, be it from government, be it to the justice system, be it to our media, be it to how business works, both big business and small business. 
how the whole system works collectively is very, very, very interesting. But the role that Britain played outside into the world too, into the broader world too, is a very, very, it's, it's fascinating also too. So me, I'm British Nigerian. Um, I was born, which means my parents were are Nigerian. Actually, I'm British Nigerian Ghanaian. Uh, my dad is actually half Ghanaian. My surname, Abby, is not a Nigerian surname. It's a Ghanaian surname. So as you must know, I'm actually Shikiri, for those people who wanted to know, which means that's the ethnic group I come from, Nigeria, which Naya has never oh, heard of before because she's a Yoruba woman and they're, they're as yeah, bad I've as actually the supremacist not come across that. I've not come across that ethnicity. Of course you haven't, yeah. It's so funny <laughs> when I meet... When I normally meet Yoruba people, I say I'm Shakiri, so they say, can it be cured? And then, um, so then I, just, I say to you guys, I don't know what you're talking about. But but that's just the way. So and so the role that Britain played around the world um, was is has been a very interesting one. The role that Britain played in terms of race and racism is also one that is very, very, and ca the cascading of these ideas around the world too um, is one that I find to be fascinating. So Britain has a huge role to play as far as anti-racism is concerned. And um, as, as does America, as does France, as does all these um, um, imperial countries that would be described, uh, would have described themselves and would be described as imperialist in nature. But in Britain, the difference between, I take Britain and America, is that Americans are quite honest. They're just quite open with you. And also, I must point out, Americans are very lovely people. I mean, the, the place I, I tend to go down to Miami at least once a year, but I've driven around the majority of Americans, spent a lot of time in, across most of the states in America, and they're some of the loveliest people on earth. They're much more nicer than we are over here. Um, but as far as Britain's concerned, the, big, the key difference I find between those two societies is that Britain is a bit more slick, insidious, and... Um, quiet about things or so so the american if american was going to actually an american or so for example american racism at its worst or so would probably scream die n word die and whilst they're killing you or so and your death might end pretty quickly or so if you're not careful um british <laughs> i mean metaphorically speaking british racism would be very very polite whilst killing you very very slowly so it's a very very different all game. We are a very the wrong race in this country is very linked to class in this country. And um, that's why black people in particular often face the double whammy of the two things. So I haven't answered your question too well there because I don't think it's a question I could answer without putting it in the context of different society without comparing it to somewhere else. If I understand correctly, you, you think that, um, you know, Britain has played a very important um, and, and major role historically in the uh proliferation of racial thinking but at the same time has also played a important role in in anti-racist anti-racist thought um and that you're you're also concerned about perhaps the way in which british people uh, often think that they are not as bad as america um when it comes to racism but actually um in the uk it's much more insidious, it's much more subtle, but still bad. Britain is a very unique country in that regard. Mm, mm. If I to give you, for example, if you're talking about race or racism, and I relate this conversation to me and you, and it's something I alluded to earlier on. Um, I said that I am a Shakiri man, which I am. And you're a Yoruba lady, which you are, of course. When you go to Nigeria, for example, even the concept of... Um, so if I was to, if you were to ask me that question, where am I from in Nigeria, what would you say? What would be your exact question? I would say, what's your ethnic origin? That's what you would say. What yeah. would the average person say? 
uh, I think the average person might say, uh, what word? There's where, a T word. Your... There's a T word that you know, the average person would use. The average person would say, what tribe are you from? And okay, the, yeah, that's what they would say. Or say, if I spoke to your mum, you'll probably say the exact same thing to me. That, hey, what tribe are you from, Nelson? Or something else like that. Which mm. is fine. The problem with it is that the idea in which Africans or so, or that the idea in which you, say Naya, for example, who comes from the Yoruba ethnic group, um, to describe you guys as a tribe is absurd. There's about 65 to 70 million Yoruba people in Nigeria alone with a massive land variation and everything else um, that goes from Ijebode to Oyo to Ondo to all these other places or so. And then with a massive um, difference in the language too. If you're speaking Yoruba in Ijebode, it's very different to speaking Yoruba in, say, Eko, which is, of course, called Lagos today, or in Akure or somewhere else. These are very different things. Similar to how Link English is spoken differently depending where you go to in the United Kingdom. But for some bizarre reason, when I respect, when I refer to Yoruba people, or when we classically refer to Yoruba people, we'll describe them as tribes. Even though there's 65 million people with a huge land mass, massive history, everything else you can think of. But then when I refer to, say, Scottish people or so, who are about 4 million in number, um, with quite a small land mass and everything else, they're described as a nation. Yeah, and I mean, I think... The difference between the yeah, nation and the tribe is, is a concept known as racism, as colonial... Oh, okay, it's a colonial well, so let's, so let, let's, get, let's get into that. So I think... Because um, for me, I, I've always said, what's your ethnic origin? Yeah. And I think... I hear, I think you even acknowledge that other ethnic minority people might say, what tribe are you from? So yeah, of course, absolutely. So it, it's not, I, I don't think most white people, you know, are even that aware of different tribes. They might just think, oh, are you Nigerian? Are you whatever? They're not, they may not be aware of. Or even um, the country, they'll say you're African. But yeah, the exactly. About so, the, but wait, just quickly, yeah. so, oh, how is that racism? Because presumably it's coming from the people from that society. They're, they're, they're the ones that are self-referring as tribe. What's the Yoruba word for tribe, Inaya? I don't speak Yoruba, unfortunately. Okay, well, I'll tell you what it is. It doesn't exist. There is no such thing as a Yoruba word for tribe. They there's can no say ethnicity thing. if they want it. But no, no, but there's, there's no such word. There's no such Shikiri word or Hausa word or Iba word or, or Ashanti word or Ga word or so many different ethnic, ethnic groups. So there's no word for tribe. For the actual word is an English word. And it was a colonial concept that was imposed upon us or so. So when you take, for example, Nigerians, which is a which is an amalgamation, a British amalgamation, a hundred year old a hundred year old gathering of hundreds of different ethnic groups with vastly different um, ethnicities or so, vastly different ethnic di differences and um, and um, belief systems and histories. And some of them were actually competing with each other. Some of them were had long been enemies and everything else. I just dumped them all into one country and called it Nigeria was an act of enormous, unbelievable racism. You take, for example, the Igbos in the southeast were have a lot less in common with say the Hausa in the north um than say the Britons and the Russians do. But because they were all black, the belief was that these are all the same thing. It's one big black body and we could just oh, so it all you know that's completely false. Because if, no, if that not. was I'll give you or let me respond because if that was if it was just because they were black, then presumably they would just have give, made Africa one country. That would work and that would have worked in our interest. Well, I mean, so it's it's clearly not to do with just the fact that they were black, or sub the entirety of sub-Saharan Africa would have been one country. That would have been now. You see, but again, so the division of Africa or so into into various. Um, also, before we ethnic... even get to that point, let me just. But Please. the thing is, at the end of the day, 
we are where we are. So like, I don't really know what, why that matters. At the end of the day, there's many countries that many different ethnicities live under one country. I mean, I mean, we're talking about in Britain right now, you've got Scottish, uh, Welsh, English, and then all the different ethnic minorities. We, the, the, the fact that different ethnicities are put under one country, I don't think is intrinsically a problem. I don't necessarily think every single ethnicity deserves to have their own or should have their own con- their own country. I don't think there should be just a Yoruba uh, country that's just for your people. Can ask a question here? What party did you run for when you were running for election? Brexit. You don't see the hypocrisy there. That, that, so really the, purpose, that. the purpose of Brexit was the independence of Britain and the separation of Britain from, say, the other European states, where they didn't want to become part of a European EU superstate or so, where they could have independence in every single form or fashion whatsoever. And that yeah. was pretty much the driving force for it, which essentially was European tribal differences coming to fore. So, so the reason it's not hypocritical is because it's for me the question is of democracy so if the if the societies now um want to democratically uh decide that they want to break up and become smaller um <laughs> that's that's within their rights so for example in the uk we had the scottish referendum in mm-hmm. 2014 and they voted to remain in the uk mm-hmm. and if, if other countries within africa you know for example sudan split up um, mm-hmm. Many countries are still negotiating what where the boundaries of their society is. So to me, there's no contradiction between um, my attitude towards national sovereignty. But for my, my my the key difference to me is is a democratic question. Now we can we can I can agree that how it happened in the past was wrong, and it undoubtedly contributed to a whole host of um, negative consequences. Mm-hmm. But talking about decades later and i think I, I want african societies and countries and people to look about look at how they can resolve the problems today for their future rather than that's it i just think that we are where we are so let's deal with it today so you take for example in the late 60s um the the Igbos in southeast nigeria wanted to go their own way they wanted yeah. to form their own country you won't believe who armed the Nigerian state to their teeth to make sure the Igbos didn't go their own way. You won't believe, essentially, which was actually, they could actually argue, make a case that there was that a genocide was waged upon them, that starvation was used as a weapon of war. Um, even the whole concept, when I was very little, I didn't know. I, I'm from the, I was born in the 80s, so I saw the Live Aid and the Band-Aid pictures where you saw the Ethiopian kids with the big, with what we call a, a medical term called kwashoko, which is, um protein deficiency carb heavy diets and you've got big belly skinny arms you know, exaggerated sides of your head or so and you'll the rest of your body be quite skinny but the parts of your body that can't lose but you might have a big belly because you've just been loaded up with carbs or something else like that so it was the original i knew those to be ethiopian children i did not know those were actually the original sites of the africans in that state was actually the ebos the, or, or what became to be known as the biafrans so when the, the when the Igbos and the Biafrans wanted to go their, their own way for the Nigerian states after negotiating, which they're still trying to do to this very day, by the way, even democratically, what you'll find is that, hey, independence on the continent or so is often just flagged deep. 
even when you look at what happened in Nigeria just the other day, I know we're going in a very different kind of direction to what we're to to what well, we'll come back to in a second. But even when you look at what happened in Niger, for example, the other day, which is Niger is the predominantly house of state north of Nigeria, French speaking um, state north of Nigeria, they asked the French the French ambassador, they expelled the French ambassador and demanded that France withdraw their troops from the nation. France said, no, we're going nowhere, we're staying put. And France actually wanted to use the Nigerian state and Nigerian army to invade, which is predominantly Hausa, to invade their actual own brothers. So we're going a bit far off. But, I want, but the key point I want to point out here is this, that in this very concept, throughout the whole thing there, every part of our discussion, or so every part of our discussion has been informed by imperialism, there is by imperialism, by something I've often described as white supremacy and racism, because the idea that the Africans have some degree of democracy that a British, that say Britain can get has, that they can just vote to leave the state, something like that, it just doesn't work in practice. Well, I, I don't, because I don't it, think, I don't think they're there yet. But I, I would yeah. love to be in my lifetime, you know, a massively developed um, African continent. You will join, uh, join me to do it to lobby, to lobby, to lobby, to lobby Westminster to get their foots off the necks of the Africans. I take it then. Well, I mean, I've been, I, I, I actually argue for an, a Marshall Plan for Africa. I um, so, now on that, you and I, brothers. That's why I love you, and that's why we love each other. Well, yeah, because, because that, 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 on that we're brother and sister, of course. Yeah, but <laughs> that doesn't. But the thing is that that requires actually European societies get involved. That that's actually not requiring them to 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 um disassociate from those countries i think that actually there's levels of moral responsibility uh there to unleash the potential of those people look in terms of the examples I'll, you I'll give, say I... one final thing a marshall plan for africa there's a shorter word for it do you know what it is go on reparations but let's no, move on that do you know what <laughs> I, oh, this is the thing there's so many different areas that we can go yeah. into in this discussion and I want to I want to focus it. So look, before we just move on, I just want to say that look, those are there are, there's loads of individual cases there, um, that have lots of different complexities, um, involved. So I can't really I can't address every single one of them, and I don't know the the details and the histories of all the different cases from you know the Nigerian Civil War to Niger to yeah. lots of different things. Um, but ultimately, my the point that I'm my ultimate point is that. I think that there's something very dangerous and very, uh, uh, you know, infantilizing when we put colonialism and racism for the majority of the problems in Africa today. There are countries that are former colonial, such as Singapore, who have had um, leaders that have transformed their societies and they are now high income countries. And I think until African societies and African leaders take responsibility for their governance, for their e economy, for their health systems, it will continue to uh, there will continue to be persistent and deep rooted problems. I don't think we help when we take when we just blame blame the West rather than actually holding the leaders themselves. I'm going to write a book called "The Miseducation of Inaya," and um, and I'm going to dedicate it to you. Um, so look, so Inaya, right? Look, first of all, the first in response to that, I'll say this is that that African leaders who step up, really step up and do what needs to be done and have a clear vision of how they're going to make a big leap forward for themselves or so. Far too many of them have actually been assassinated. And replaced, and replaced, for example. Look, look, there's nothing... Sorry. We have to look at how in other countries have been successful. I want to see models of success. I don't want to see uh, models of self-victimhood. I want to see... I want to see concrete 
policies, measures, practices, ideas of how we actually transform Africa. And if we continue to blame uh, Western governments, uh, how can the people ever, you know, exercise their agency? I just don't see how. Again, so it's not we. It's not like when we speak of colonialism, we must not be deceived into thinking that we're speaking about something that has come and gone, because we are not in the slightest bit. When we speak of imperialism, agree with that. I think. No, when we speak of imperialism, I'll give an example. I'll give. I'll give an example. Formal British colonialism has ended in in Africa. No, flag independence. No, flag independence and and independence are two very very different things. Why do you think that most Nigerian leaders or so, when they're having elections in Nigeria, why do you think they always come up? And they put their best foot forward at Chatham House, as opposed to going to go speak to Nigerian people. They don't debate each other at the Nigerian people. They debate each other. They debate each other's ideas at, over at Chatham House because they're trying to impress they're a trying to curry, They're trying to improve their image internationally. They're trying to curry favour. Now, I, that doesn't mean that they're they're ruled by you know Rishi Sunak or Boris Johnson. Why no, of course it doesn't. But why aren't like, why aren't say for example British leaders or American leaders going to go and going to go um, put, put put their foot their foot forward their best foot forward say in Nigerian version of a think tank like Chatham House. Because economic, like, you know, for example, look at India. So for most of my childhood, for most of my life, you know, pe- pe- many Western leaders have, uh, you know, essentially just seen India as this poor backwater developing country. Now I'm seeing them take India hugely seriously because it's economically transforming. Like, you know, mon- money talks. That's just the bottom line. When these countries, when these countries actually are economically developing, when they're exporting um, the kinds of things that people want, then of course it is in the national interest to pay attention to these countries. We see it with China, we see it with India, and we see it with many other countries that decades ago people weren't listening to them. But now they are succeeding and now people are paying attention to them and that's what that that's just the way society yeah you know, that's just normal yeah you know, okay. i mean i'll so for example right to compare please go ahead and i please please finish what you're no, saying I, Sorry, what i, I worry about is what i worry about is almost a kind of what reverse eurocentrism where we actually almost ask european societies to act morally better than how other African societies or Asian societies would act. We are all just human. We are all infallible. Um, we, we all, we are all, we are, you know, we all make mistakes. We are, we, and so why, why expect them to behave in ways that would be unnatural to other human beings? Okay, so, to you at this right. So, in terms of the comparison between Singapore or or China or even India compared to Africa, mm. so the degradation mm. of the African. Um, at the hands of the Europeans and, of course, at the hands of the other people, such as the Arabs, for example, or so, um, was transformatively, unbelievably worse than anything that had ever been seen in the world before. Okay. So, and then also, too, when you take a look at it, too, right, what you're comparing, essentially, and now this is where you and I agree. When you take a look at certain things, you say, you said India, India's risen up and they've actually risen to power. China's mm-hmm. risen up or so, they've risen to power or so. Both of them actually have populations are actually technically, I believe, smaller than the African, than say all of Africa. But Africa is balkanized into very, very small countries or so, which economically will never be competitive. For example, I'll give you just one example. Um, I'll give you an example of say Nigeria. Um, Nigeria's GDP is actually, I won't even give you Nigeria's GDP. Africa's GDP as a collective or so is smaller than the gross domestic product of the state of California. Yeah, for some bizarre reason, a, a, a tiny Gabon, which again creates so much wealth or so, but it doesn't really make much of the money itself. So that's why the population are poor. And then when the when there was a coup there recently, 
it was welcomed very, very much. A military coup was welcomed by Africans because, again, they lived through decades of a essentially a French client state dictator, which was the which was the Bongo family. And again, even now, the guy who's taken over pretty much is pretty is pretty much looks like he's just going to continue that essentially. So they're still going through that. So what we're seeing now, what you are saying, and what you are what you are saying about hey, Africa essentially, what you're technically saying is that Africa would be better off if it adopted the China model or the Indo model, which would be get rid of these silly borders that were imposed upon them by Europeans or so, embrace absolute trade, free trade across the actual continent, migrate, move around, get things done, the best and the brightest, empower them to actually come up with industry, to come up with ideas, um, put the money behind them, let's grow the economy. Because look, the one, the funniest thing, you and I are both Nigerians, right? You and I are both Nigerian origins. British so Nigerian. Yeah, but, yeah but, we're, but we're still Niger. It doesn't, it doesn't take, we're British Nigerian. Of course, we're British, but we're Nigerian. Are you with me? We're, we're British, but we, we occasionally like a bit of pounded yam. You know what I mean? So we like our, we like our, we like our, we, we, we like our, um, our mashed potatoes, but we also like our pounded yam too. Are you with me? That's a good thing. We bring the flavor to this country. We are the culture of this country. We're the culture of many countries going forward. But if you take a look at it right now, right, that, if we can find that particular way where we're taking all these people, let's take a look. I'm just giving you and I, for example, many other people that can mention across British society. Nigerians are some of the most successful ethnic groups across the entire world. Nigerians are the most educated demographic in the United States of America. No group has more degrees than Nigerians. And you and I both know why. But why is it that the one thing that we have to ask ourselves is that why is it Nigerians tend to excel more? outside of nigeria than they do inside of nigeria this country because the governments are not creating the enabling conditions for uh, nigerians to succeed and, well, I, and feel, I feel and, it's a bit it's a bit more technical well so I can think, i just please go, on, go, on. Please well, go ahead, what please. I just quickly i just came back from poland right yep. um last week the, was it many like? I was very shocked we have this perception in in the uk that you know many of these former soviet bloc countries are just back you know russia looking backwards the warsaw is developed it is a forward-thinking city their best days are ahead of them okay mm -hmm. and they they were you know former colonies from the soviet union they uh were oppressed they were um you know they were treated terribly and they have transformed you know i i'm sick of the excuses and i'm estonia poland many of these countries are really you know in fact warsaw 85 percent of warsaw was destroyed during world war ii it was so bad so to me built? it was rebuilt by partly contribution from other parts of the world but also the willpower to actually rebuild those countries from the people themselves and i think i think that when we constantly go look oh it's the west's fault all of this we are we are taking away that human creative spirit to transform to better to actually here's what i don't agree with i don't think that the idea that africa is stagnant or so they're not developing or they're not making moves or so is is a correct one because it's not i'll be honest with you it's not when you actually go to places um there's certain places i could tell you about so my my folks are from i'm shakiri my folks are from the actual niger delta area so which actually is quite rough um, um oil companies have destroyed the area but there's a place that my relative there's a small town called Ebutubu, which was founded by my grandfather um which is founded by my grandfather i was just speaking to my some of my cousin just the other day just the other day so when you think of delta you'll think of deprivation in absolute terms but 
uh, my granddad founded it. In fact, if you know about Meghan and Harry, for example, um, the father of a guy of, 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 of one of their good friends who's in the documentary with them, I, I know he doesn't like it when people mention them alongside him, but his name is Misham Harriman. His, uh, he's from the same place. His actual, his folks helped develop the area or so, the, the town that my grandfather actually um, established. In fact, they were rival um, chiefs at one particular point. So what they've done, they've developed it. So a point where that particular area in the Delta or so, it, it, right now is pretty much a paradise. If you go around parts of Lagos or so, you'll see parts of Lagos that are, that are yeah. first world by any parts whatsoever. There's so undoubtedly a lot of positive, see, it's seen, not happening fast enough. It's not happening fast enough. No, no, no. I think that you have to understand that also too, that the African states or the Africans essentially were stabbed in the back way more than anybody else in this world was. And they were set up. Even when you look at the concept of Nigeria, the concept of Nigeria is actually a joke when you think about it. So that nobody can actually make Britain share a country with, say, the Russians. Even though the Russians and the Brits actually have way more in common What's than, the say... Solution? Break, up the, break all of them into multiple ethnic, ethnic states. I would get rid of the actual borders altogether. I'd get rid of the inner, the inner borders within Africa, so just create one African super state and let just... Well, I don't and, think and, that's going to happen now. So. Well, 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 then, I, uh, again, so why is it that I, don't, I firmly don't believe that a group of white men in the eighteen in, uh, in eighteen eighty four know better about how to manage the affairs and the inner workings and the and the inner borders of Africa than the Africans do in two thousand twenty three. Country to have colonized. There's the Ottoman Empire. There's mm-hmm. the Benin Empire. The, you know the Mamluk. Who did Empire. the Benin Empire? Who sorry? Who did the Benin Empire colonize? Well, it was the whole. I so are you telling me that an empire. The whole nature of an empire, surely that's mm-hmm. what an empire is. It is so, no, it is, colonialism and empire and colonialism are very different things. A, 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 no, the n- empire is the uh, superstructure ruling mm-hmm. By, mm-hmm. Of, of, a, of a mass region which will encompass lots of different groups, lots of different people. Mm-hmm. The Austro Hungarian Empire, the mm-hmm. Ottoman Empire, you know, this, this, the, if, if anything, what we have now is historic, historic and aberration. That doesn't, this is not a moral claim that I'm making that, you know, before that, that makes it okay. But yeah, this I'm idea, but this attempt to um, create this unique, uh, this unique idea of the West as uniquely, uh, you know, out of the ordinary when it comes to, I think, a lot of the things it's behaved. I, I just don't think that's the truth. I think if African people had the technology at the time, they would have had, I think, that, and, and it was the other way around, and the Arabs were trading Europeans, I think they would have done the same thing. I don't, I don't, to the slightest bit. Really? No. You no. really don't? Far from it, no. Actually, no, far from it. So I've forgot to remember. So when you speak of the Benin Empire, that's my area of the world. So I speak to you that our language still persists to this very day. Our language, our culture, our, our cities, and everything else still persists to this very day. Uh, even when it's, um, uh, this is really getting quite micro for, for your audience. If we spoke about, about African politics, we're probably going to have to go on for quite a long We're going to have a part two of this. Uh, and Nels Abbey returns to Inaya, um, to Inaya's podcast, to Equiado, uh, the Equiado Project pod- podcast. But you take a look, for example, it wasn't really operating. It, it was, they just often weren't operating like that. Even the levels well, I know the argument now is that that slave empire not have slavery. Pardon? Did the Benin Empire not have slavery? No, slavery is a very, very interesting term because I think that what we need to do now, hey. as far as Africans are concerned, no, no, what, did, I've written about this. I've written about this more extensively than anybody else. I've written about this more, did, and I'm trying to. I'm trying to expand. Let me expand on the point. Do you, do you acknowledge that the African African people traded in slavery? 
Africans. Of course, but the point, so, but the key point is. You said to me that you don't think African people would have done the same thing. I think they did. I think they. No, would no, have. no, 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 no. Again, so what was uh, the people who were enslaved or so back home or so were often prisoners of wars or prisoners as a result of crimes. They weren't just the average that random makes person. No, it doesn't make slavery okay. It just makes it different to what actually happened on the ethnicizing of just slavery by virtue of as the Europeans did to Africans. So the point I'm making is this, is that what we as African people or black people or two have to do, I think that the term slavery doesn't doesn't serve, it doesn't doesn't serve our purpose anymore. Not just purpose, doesn't describe what we experience anymore. In the exact same way, say, for example, what happened in world, in, to the Jewish people in World War II, where they actually had terminology, they developed terms, I think, the Holocaust or genocide or so, where they had to come up with terms and describe the unique nature of the catastrophe that was imposed upon them or so, is something that we have to actually do as Africans too. Because the problem with it is that the first thing that happened, the moment you just mentioned slavery or so, you get somebody who thinks he's a wise-ass, uh, somebody who thinks they're really, really smart, say, everybody has slavery everywhere. But these were very different. Slavery is such an umbrella term. That, and they were practiced very differently in different places. Yeah. No, chattel slavery is very different to uh, other form, like forms of indentured yeah. servitude. No, I, I don't doubt that. But what I'm trying to get at here is the attempt to is that what I'm trying to get at is that history is full of great evil, but yeah. also examples of great triumph. History mm -hmm. is full of moral complexity, where not even was. No, and very rarely was for even colonialism one direction. You often had collaborators from within certain ethnic no. groups. No. Um, there were certain ways in which, for example, I mean, I, I did a lot of my dissertation at university on a, on a, the, the, the shift between uh, a lot of indigenous religious practices in, in Nigeria to, uh, to Christianity. And one of the things I remember reading was that actually, uh, for example, uh, the the polygamy the 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 Christian missionaries were trying to prevent polygamy um, that was persistent because in Christianity that is considered wrong. Now, actually, many people now you know would say actually maybe it was a good thing that polygamy uh, was discouraged. Now that doesn't mean that what the colonialism as a kind of superstructure was okay. Oh, but so you, okay, fair enough. I thought you were. I thought you were going to go to left the center. So that polygamy might not be a bad thing. I was going to say. So you yeah, were no, happy no, that was going to say that. Junior wife. No, no. The point I'm making is that actually there were times where maybe there were things that were um, argued for um, that might have actually been beneficial that we now agree with. So the point I'm making is that why do we want to just say racism, full stop, and not actually acknowledge that? This, for me, this is just the complexity and nuance and the back and forth of history of different people I think, interacting. I think, it's, I think it's very different. I think there's a very, very different thing. Also, first of all, my first question is, what did you get in your dissertation? What grade did you get? Uh, upper to one. Okay, not too bad, not too bad. I got first in my dissertation. My dissertation okay. was on, was on oil. Me, the, beat me at the and now he beat me a dissertation grade. Don't worry, the L's are still going to keep coming for you in terms of me. But listen, <laughs> my, my dissertation was on oil and the Nigerian economy. It seems like all Nigerians, in Brit all British Nigerians, write their dissertations on, on something to do with Nigeria. Actually, when I was speaking to a girl, a, a girl, a woman, an executive at a record company, her name is Charity Ibadu, and I just wanted to shout her out. She wrote her dissertation based upon my book, Think Like a White Man, and she wrote a dissertation called uh, Think Like a Black Woman, and she was very inspired by Think Like It's 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 throughout the dissertation. I was really, really grateful to her. I think she's Nigerian. I'm going to take her out for a um, a celebration hot chocolate one of these days soon. Just shout out to her name. is Charity Ibadu. 
she did an MBA at Cass University, and um, she and she based a dissertation on things like white man, and that I am completely honoured. And she and she knocked out the park. I think she got the first two. So there you go. That's two L's you've taken tonight, Ben. But but you see, but the key thing about it is this, right? Is that when we're dealing with the 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 nature of of, of colonial activity, with um how colonialism actually worked and how it was imposed, particularly post the enslavement. Once it was acknowledged that look. Enslavement was a crime against humanity. It was a wrong that the Europeans had waged upon the Africans or so, and therefore it shouldn't continue. Then they come back with something called colonialism altogether, which is just basically enslavement from home, and we own your home. And you, and you also, too, don't get to keep your own language. You have to learn our language. And if you don't learn our language well or so, it becomes a point where you are not particularly well-educated. And if you take a look at it, even when you mention India and China, one of the best analyses I heard recently they, they pointed out that when you look at colonialism, one thing that the that the Indians took from the the two things, the two great things that the, that the Brits had to offer, so was or well, don't know if they're too great, but one was technological prowess, and the other was the language or so, because the English language is a beautiful language. As is Yoruba. Yoruba is a beautiful language too. There's many things you can say or do in Yoruba, so that you can't say in English or so, which is again as a Shikiri, there's many there's beauty in every in every language. But the one thing that Nigerians took on board. Um, where, where the Indians differ to the Nigerians is that the Indians didn't really bother themselves too much about the language. That's why we meet the average Nigerian today. The average Nigerian is well better spoken than the average Indian. But the Indians embraced technology from the British, whether it's railways, whether it's every little know-how. They wanted to find out how the British were doing things. Whereas the Nigerians, we took on the language. That's why you see us. We have all these great Nigerian writers and everything else. So way more than, say, the Indians do per capita. And... Um, and I think that, again, if I could do things back differently or so, if I could do things, if I could rewind back a clock, that would be the one thing that we do differently or so. Sod the English language, as beautiful as it is, and I actually make my money, a uh, good chunk of my money now, actually, as a writer or so in the English language. But I would say let's embrace the technology as the Indians did and actually learn how to beat um, beat them at their own game as far as technology is concerned, which the Indians have done and why the Indians now, when we're, as we um, surge ahead in the actual fourth revolu industrial revolution, um, the Indians are doing very, very well, and the Nigerians are doing well, very well on the continent too. But in, but on the global scale, they're still trying to get there. Okay, well let's we've talked. Let, let's fast forward to the present day, please, because uh, I think it's quite interesting that we are both, uh, you know, relatively successful uh, Nigerian descended people. Yeah, and doesn't that what how, how like doesn't that show that people that Britain is actually a country where uh, ethnic minority people can not only succeed, but, you know, run the country. You know, I mean, for me, no, no country is perfect, but I, look, on the God's honest truth, I think that there's minimal barriers for me in this country to, to achieve in life. I, I honestly, in my career, I'm still a young woman, of course, but in my career so far, I have, generally found that I have been treated for my character, that I've been treated for uh, what I bring to the table. Um, and I, if anything, I think oftentimes being an ethnic minority has probably helped me because everybody, well, because I think that people think, you know, uh, people, a lot, whether that's boards, whether that's uh, in many professional institutions, so you're, on the of, I, you're, you're on the board of um, the National Trust. Or, no, 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 no. So yeah. I have, many, I, 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 there's many uh, black lawyers, 
uh, that I know that are also or also those in in the city that actually feel that uh, co- companies are falling over themselves to to increase their representation. Now, I don't necessarily think that people should be given a leg up because of their race necessarily, but I. I but my my point is that I actually think that um, I don't feel that there's there are very many barriers. Um, for so I think it's very. I think that there's many different things going on there. You said a lot. Also, mm-hmm. um, you said a lot. Oh, you said more than I think you know that you're saying. Because number one, you're a quite young, and b you've had specific experiences within specific industries or so, and also two, you're quite high profile. So therefore, you are politically active. And um, you were embraced by some of these uh, by by some of these things. So, for example, you're on the board of is it uh, there's uh, National Portrait Gallery? That's you, right? Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Right. So you go from and you are still in your twenties right now. That is uniquely unusual, and I think it probably might have more to do with politics than actual anything else. So right nothing now, so. to do with what I've achieved or created or anything. No, no, I don't think. I don't. I don't. I don't think that. I. No, it's not. I don't think you. No, Naya. If I do not think you were bright, I wouldn't be on this conversation with you. I would be having this conversation with you. In fact, also a lot of people, a lot of people in who might be described in your sphere, also probably know I've blocked them on Twitter because I don't really take them too seriously, right? Um, but so, but I could. But I've always, the very moment I met you, I said I knew there was something about you. You were seer. I said it before, and so I always tend to study people. So. Um, no, I do think that, look, you're bright, you're brilliant or so, but that unique nature of that opportunity or so when they're bringing in a 20-something-year-old, like, what's the average age of the board then, by the way? Maybe. Are they grey-haired or, or still or still, or still dark-haired? Grey. But for some bizarre reason, you're 20-something-years-old and you're on the board there. And now you see what I mean? So, if, so, so and if, if, I'm not thinking, I, I certainly don't think it's because you are black, I think it's because no, but a couple of things or so. Blackness might actually play a role, but the politics associated with your blackness or so, the politics you have associated with yourself has probably opened up some doors for you. I find that if you take, for example, or so in the city. I would disagree, <laughs> to be honest. I'm happy for you to disagree. Well, the reason I'm I would happy, disagree please, go ahead. is because I actually, you know, I say what I, you know, the things I write about, the things I think about, and you know, I, I take ideas seriously, but actually I'm not, I think many people that have opposite or different politics to me will find themselves on the cover of Vogue. They'll be, they'll get lots of um, accolades in, uh, you know, on, on presenting TV shows and all these things. Uh, I, I actually think having uh, a more critical politics about the kinds of discussions that are happening in contemporary society often closes a lot of doors for you. I, you're not going to see me on the cover of um, many of, you know, Elle, Vogue, these amazing dazed and confused i mean no it's not about one it's just a reality that actually mm-hmm. you could argue that you wouldn't, um, see me on the, you wouldn't see me on those things either no but, I but think you actually, also you wouldn't see me on those things and also too you wouldn't see me on there but don't get me wrong I, I might write for them i might write for them also and therefore i don't have the type of profile that they need me there for so and i'm not particularly good looking or so in that regard so i think i'm handsome but so my mum certainly thinks i'm handsome too very handsome. But I, but I, thank you so much that's so nice of you and i do believe you mean that too um but yeah <laughs> uh, the, but yeah but the key thing about it is that i just know i don't think that i they, they don't need me there you with me i'm not the type of person to go they might, they, they'll get storms on there they'll get storms with someone else like that and they don't need political thinkers or any but what okay. you know, like, Monroe Bergdorf, for example, you know, being uh, Monroe Bergdorf. Monroe Bergdorf, yes, absolutely. She's an influencer, yes. 
yeah so she is political um she's she she's talks political, about but she's much more than that she's a model she's a model she's an influence on a model she's literally she's literally paid um she's literally paid to look good she looks like somebody you would see in a magazine or so i do not uh, so I do not. That's why you want to see me on the cover of it. Way more likely to have had um, opp- certain opportunities if I had different views. Because you think that my views have actually opened doors for me. You can make that argument. I'm not discounting that in certain Would instances. Would you be at GB News if you were, say, Jason Okundae, who is a popular well, writer? You know, Would you be... But, 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 but I suppose... Put Jason aside for a second. Let me ask you this, right? This time, in two years' time, we would probably be a year into a Starmer government or so. We'll be looking at Starmer or so. Do you think that the opportunities will still be flowing for the National Portrait Gallery and everything else or so? Or do you think the winds have changed, may have changed by then? I think the opportunities will still be there. You're very, very young and you've done a great job of actually identifying yourself and breaking in there or so. But we are often finding that too, where increasingly very, very young black people um, don't get me wrong, people love us in this country when we're very, very young. You know that. <laughs> people love black people when they're young in this country. Uh, the younger you are, so the better. Or when you're very, very old. But when you're at your peak economic competitiveness or so, and you cannot have the wall pull over your eyes, and you know you're left from your right, and you're back from your front or so, it becomes a bit more different or so, when you're a bit more established. But anyway, but moving that, but just moving on from that or so, when you take a look at it, what you said about Britain and opportunity, yeah, I do think that if you apply yourself, you push yourself, you might find it harder than other people, but you and that's fine. But you've got to, if you oh, want so something you enough in life, you've got to fight for it. That's you, true. You you don't believe you you can't imagine that, and what I've done is because of my own initiative. No, I'm not, no, 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 Naya, I'm not saying what you have done. Is not no, Inaya. Look, I think you're an impressive young lady. I think you're an intelligent young lady. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. I said it from the very first moment we met around the table, around when I sat opposite you at dinner table at Oxford University. That's exactly what I said to you. That look, if I was um, that's exactly what I said to you. But it's very, very. We, you're doing. You're performing a not performing. You are in a particular role. Are you with me? That is what, you. What do you, think, what do you think that that role is? I think that well, you were a Brexit party. Um, you were a, you were a Brexit party candidate. You are a you were a commentator on the right of the spectrum, or so. Which place, which again, as a black woman who's doing all those things, so places you in a very very narrow spectrum and a high profile spectrum too. It will open up doors to you again because again, I often say that Britain is governed by fourteen very very special words when it comes to ethnic minorities, and I'll use black people in this situation. You know what those fourteen words are? Go on. No black person ever went broke telling white people what they want to hear. Those are the most important 14 words you could probably ever hear in your life if you're an ethnic minority in Britain. Do you think that I believe the things that I say, or do you think I do. I'm just... I because do. This... No, I do. no, you are not, you know, you are not a caricature. Look, there's some people in that realm who are just, who are not serious, who are not serious and they're pretending, essentially. There are some people in that realm who are weird, who are just weird and strange or so. And I, I won't say the names, but the one, the, I don't know, the 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 guy with whatever, I, I wouldn't take too many pictures with that guy. But that's a career, bit of career advice for everybody listening. I wouldn't take too many pictures to the guy you think I'm talking about or so, because I think some strange stuff is going to come out come out about him soon enough. But if you take a look at all those different things, there also, there's many different people. When it comes to you, and that's why you and I, you, you and I are the best of friends, um, 
is that I think you're a you're sincere and b I think you're you're being a you're sincere b you're smart and c also and I think those two things actually have helped drive your success. But I do think also too at the same time if you had if you were the exact same thing in Aya, the exact same person with a very very different politics, the act some of the access you've got particularly in this time in which we have a very very reactionary government, I don't think it would probably sit too well with them. Okay, well I I think that. You know, I think look at people no, like that's no, that's no slight of you. No, no, I, no, you no, no, yeah. no, I don't agree with what you're saying, but fair enough. I or yeah. at least I think look, look, undoubtedly certain political contexts might help or hinder people that have certain views at different times. You know, I'm not gonna deny that. But I see people like Emma Dabiri, who I respect very much, um, you know, David Harewood, David Olushoga that have that take a different Afawa Hirsch, uh, that take a very different view um on on certain issues to me and i see them doing very very well i think i see them as very successful i think there's actually a, a, a huge space um and i want a wider space for um ethnic minority thinkers and people to have a whole range of views i personally see many people that have different views on these issues have just as much access just as much opportunity just as much clout as i do so i i, I just I, I just disagree i think it's pe- people can't imagine that a Asian or black person sincerely hold, hold certain views and uh, and achieve things because they are capable. And I think no, that's no, no. I want to say no, no, no. I don't look. Number one, holding certain views because holding certain views and being capable. position. He is prime minister because he because he so is uh, for, not because his ethnicity because he got there through. So the, do I. The way, yeah. So do I. I think that I think Rishi Sunak's a brilliant man. I think Rishi Sunak. I was in. I, I, I've long even before this. When I met him, when I was at, when I was at the BBC, for example, um, I thought I, I had the opportunity to meet him once, and I thought oh, this guy's very very impressive. Within before you know it, with 20, um, 24 months later on, he was charged with the exchequer. Remember, me and him were both come from a similar background. They're both former bankers or so. So look, I, I find in fact it was quite funny. Um, I was reminded of that not too long ago. I was in Istanbul and I was in this very, very old sauna. I was going for getting a really, I'm giving a lot of details here, but I was getting a scrub and everything else in this really interesting sauna. It's about 300 year old sauna in Istanbul. And I was speaking to these businessmen from Oman. Um, I never, I don't think I'd met too many people from Oman before, just me and them in the room. And they were all businessmen that wanted to just went, to, just went away for a weekend to Istanbul. And we're just all in there just talking the UK, Oman. They invited me over to Oman. I'll take up their invitation soon enough. But um, but they were talking to me, and they were just we were all talking about how impressed they were with Rishi Sunak. That it wasn't just it wasn't just the politics. Rishi Sunak has he carries himself with a degree of majesty and a degree, and you can see his intellect shines through. I don't know how great a job he's doing. It's so yeah. similar to Rich, so similar to Rishi Sunak or so. I would put you and Rishi Sunak in the same bucket. Are you with me? I wouldn't put say. Suella Braverman in the same bucket as you guys. I, I wouldn't, yeah. she, she, you know, I'm so I because we don't have a lot of time, but there's so much more I want to talk about. I feel like <laughs> scratch the surface. We can have a part two. You're my friend. We can have a part two. Don't worry. Yeah. I, I give you my word. I give you my word. Yes. The thing is, I think I, I still think I, I think in terms of uh, whether if there's a Keir Starmer government or so on, I, I welcome, you know, uh, uh, a continuing discussion about many of these issues regardless of who's in power mm-hmm. I don't think that many people's uh, success is contingent solely on the fact that there's a conservative government I think that 
certain people represent a, a, a particular political constituency that exists within the country. And as long as there's certain people in the country that believe these things, there'll be voices that emerge to represent that. And that debate will go on. Um, and, I think that yeah. the biggest, if I'm looking back at mistakes I made in my life or so, one of the biggest mistakes I made in my life was not joining the Conservative Party. Not because I'm a conservative, because I'm not a conservative slight spark, but because when to when the when the COVID thing happened, the actual joint whatever how much it cost to be a member of the Conservative Party, it was pretty much the it was the it was the lottery ticket of all lottery tickets. You were just not getting these A lists and all these other bits and bobs of PPE and all that sort of stuff. I would have been in there and I would have been a lot richer than I am today or so, or however however rich or anything else. I would have been completely in there. But also too when you take a look at it right now, and I must give them credit, I must give the Conservative Party credit or so, that even people with very, very limited ability, people, some people I know, um, some people I know who I've known for a very long, long time, Sean Bailey, I don't know Sean Bailey personally or so, but I've known of Sean Bailey since 1999. There's one point where we're going to have a, where we potentially have an issue because an issue, something happened between him and my sister. Um, nothing in that way, but just that they had a big disagreement. They were living on the same block. Sean Bailey as running for mayor of London under a conservative ticket just showed to me that standards have been lowered to an unbelievable level. That there's no way I wanted to be able to suppress these standards and potentially become something major over there. So maybe I revealed my hand a little bit too soon or so, but I do regret not um, joining, say, a political party or anything else, particularly the Conservative Party, because the Conservative Party is very, very good pickings for black and brown people right now particularly black and brown people, if you can sound more outlandish or anything else. And I can do that dance too. I can do that dance too, but uh, but but I'm not going to do that dance. But I think that the key thing to us all is that um, this has been an interesting time to be an ethnic minority in Britain. That on one hand, this we've got the most diverse government of our lives, of my, of my 40-something years on this planet. We have the most diverse government ever. We also have the most right-wing government of my lifetime too. And I don't mean that in a nice way, reactionary government. Just yesterday, Suella Braverman almost, in my view, jeopardized a trial, a murder trial, uh, which would have actually been dish- of a man who was of a black man who was killed. I don't know, a black man who was killed by the police. Um, she's potentially Chris stepped Carver. into that. Um, yeah, Chris yeah. Carver, which was a very, very serious situation. We're seeing all sorts of bits and we're seeing all sorts, all sorts of things happen right now that I think we'll be telling our grandchildren about that we lived through as ethnic minorities. That, so on one hand, diversity is a virtue. It's a good thing. But at the same time, too, as diversity is weaponized against you or so as an ethnic minority or so, it stops being a good thing. It starts being a horrible thing. So I think that it stops being a good thing. It starts being a horrible thing. That's why I spoke about in, in terms of my article, in terms of racism laundering. But I just want to touch on your one point, though. So when you look at certain areas of the world, like be it banking and everything else, um, I get what you mean. There are a lot of people doing well for themselves in the city. But the city, similar to media or so, too, they have very slick ways in which they do things. For example, most black people like who you, most black men who you might meet in the city probably work in a couple of functions, normally in the back office. Uh, that doesn't mean that you're working in the mailroom. It just means that you're not working, you're not client facing, or you're not, uh, you're, you're either not client facing or you're not uh, managing money or so, which is where the real money is in the city of London. Um, but normally, as I said, they pack the ethnic minorities into the back office where they will look good in a suit and tie. They'll probably earn 30 to 40% more than, say, the average person. But you're not driving the Bentley anytime soon or anything else. You'll just be working that job or so to the day you possibly retire or something else. It's not a bad living. It's a good living. You're, don't get me wrong, you can buy all sorts of stuff for yourself, make you quite comfortable, but it's not the same thing. So there's very, very different. There's, so there are levels of, they're great, don't get me wrong, 
that Britain, and I do agree with you, yes, Britain is a land of opportunity. You have to apply yourself. You have to work hard. You have to be determined. You have to fight and fight and fight and fight. But yes, you can make it in this country. But at the same time, too, there's always going to be one ceiling or another above you. But And that's what we're here for, to keep smashing those ceilings. Well, on that note, uh, we are going to have to stop. I mean, there's so many things I want to speak about. We didn't even get onto the racism laundering discussion. <laughs> the things I really wanted to talk about. Um, we can but, have a part two, Anaya. I'm honest. Yeah, whenever, as soon as possible, whenever you want it, let's have a part two. I feel like we, we scratched the surface, but I really appreciate you coming on. And, uh, and I think... Uh, I think that there's not, we don't, there's a lot we disagree with, but I, do, I think there's a lot we at least understand where each other's coming from. Next time we have to figure out the things that we actually agree on. And, I don't mm. think, and look, disagreement is not inherently a bad thing. No, it's not, not inherently a bad thing. I think that, so you and I, look, we, as I keep saying, you and I are the best of friends. I've never had a friend like you before, so. But, and we disagree on so many things, but we get along like a house on fire when I speak to you or anything else. So it's always pleasant to everything. It's always a delight to speak to you as it has been again once again this time around. Thank you. Thank you, Naya. Thank you for listening to Equiano Pod. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you'd like to see more of our content, all related to tackling the complex questions around race and identity, while of course championing the values of freedom, common humanity and universalism, then why not check out our YouTube channel or consider subscribing to our Substack. Until next time, take care.